Tuesday edition of PFTPM. This is one of those weeks where you really have to remind yourself what day it is. That week between Christmas and New Year's. Is it Friday? Is it Saturday? Is it Tuesday? Is it Monday? It's one of the seven days. I can narrow it down that far. It is Tuesday. I'm fairly confident of that. One of the reasons I know it's Tuesday is because Shereen Williams is with me for the next hour as we get you up to date on everything happening around the National Football League. And today is an important anniversary in the annals of the NFL. We'll be talking about that later. I am not looking forward to that, Shereen. There is a chance that I may have a pre-planned medical emergency that requires me to exit during the third segment of the program. (laughs) Yeah, I should have done that yesterday. We were talking about the catch, right? Yeah, it's true. You know, you get your payback uh, 24 hours later. We'll be talking about the significance of December 28th, specifically the year 1975, to the NFL and to Shireen and to me. Both of us were 10 years old at the time. All right, let's get... uh, into the news, although I'd like to filibuster as much as I can through other things because COVID continues to be the main headline. People complain, why are you talking about it? Because it continues to dominate and it continues to knock out key players on key teams, such as one of the highest profile unvaccinated players in the NFL this season, Carson Wentz, Colts quarterback, positive today for COVID-19. He is unvaccinated and the positive test means 10 days unless and until the NFL and the NFL Players Association formally adopt new protocols premised on the new CDC guidelines that reduce the minimum duration to five days away from the team. Now, that's five days, and you can return if you're asymptomatic, even if you're still positive. So there's a chance that Wentz could be back in time, in theory, for Sunday's game against the Raiders if that change goes through between the league and the union we'll talk more about that coming up for now all we know is a guy that we kind of expected at some point along with Kirk Cousins along with Cole Beasley Beasley had his last week Cousins may be next for now it's Wentz Shireen who's positive Sam Ellinger the rookie from Texas will be the quarterback in the event that Wentz can't go Yeah, and they obviously need Carson Wentz. You don't want to start a rookie who has not had much experience in the NFL. He had that knee injury early and had it in the preseason, and it took him out the early part of the season. So he hasn't even taken that many reps, and Brett Hundley would be his backup if Carson Wentz can't go. But they have a ton of players now on the list, 15, Mike, and a lot of big names still on that list, Darius Leonard, Quentin Nelson, Uh, Five other starters. They have seven total starters that are on the COVID-19 list, and they certainly need this rule to change so they can get those players back facing a key game against the Raiders. But in particular, you need your quarterback, and when you don't have your starting quarterback, it's awfully hard to win. Well, and, you know, it's a shame that it's happening at such a critical juncture of the season, and maybe the Colts find their way into the playoffs and they find a way to beat the Raiders on Sunday without Carson Wentz. They managed to win on Saturday night in Arizona without Quentin Nelson and a couple other uh, offensive linemen. Mark Lewinsky was positive for COVID. Ryan Kelly was out. Eric Fisher got injured during the game. Darius Sennard was uh, scratched the day of the game, I believe, just a few hours before kickoff. So they found a way to get it done, and maybe they can get it done as long as they have Jonathan Taylor. But even then, they'd have Marlon Mack. I mean, this is a testament to what the Colts have been able to do without some of their key players so far. Maybe they can get it done without Carson Wentz. We will see. But we know they struggled earlier in the year when we had some moments without Wentz. And Wentz has gotten better as the year has gone on. So it would be a big loss for a Colts team that currently sits in the five spot in the AFC playoff picture in the way that it is now. And, of course, it'll change. But, my God, the thought of the Bills having to host the Colts in the playoffs again this year to start things off in the wild card round, not good because the Colts are constructed to go win outdoors even though they are a dome team and you know the good news if there is any and we've mentioned this a few times and it's worth mentioning it again as these teams go through these moments with players testing positive and players being unavailable and players then entering the testing holiday and not being subject to being knocked out later that helps ensure that, for example, a Carson Wentz will be available for the rest of the season. The Colts don't have to worry about him getting stung in the postseason if he goes through it now. And for any other team with a key player who's gone through it over the past several weeks, 
you're not going to have to worry, even all the way back to Aaron Rodgers. He doesn't get tested again on a daily basis until two days after the NFC Championship game because of the 90-day window that he got from his positive test in early November. So that is the good news. It's almost better to go ahead and get it over with now so you don't have to worry about it in the single elimination round. And for these teams that already have their playoff berths in hand, and the Colts obviously don't, but for some of these other teams, you know, if Tom Brady's ever going to get it, Shereen, and I'm not trying to jinx anybody by naming names, I'm just giving you a for instance, if he's ever going to get it, now's the time to get it. Oh, absolutely, and we've seen it, Mike. It's been unbelievable, the numbers. 106 were put on the list yesterday, all positive tests, and since December 1 this month, and we've still got a few days left in this month, 505 cases of COVID, 461 since December 13. Brian Hoyer, Wentz, Mercedes Lewis, Brandon Jones, Preston Williams. We've had a ton of other big names go on the list today. The Lions are out of tight ends. They're signing tight ends off of other teams' practice squads. So, you know, this thing is going to go, but you're right. If you're a playoff team, now's the time to do it, to get it. You don't want it to happen in the postseason. Say it happens a day or two, and you don't even have the five-day window, a day or two before the wild card round or divisional round or NFC championship, whatever it is. If you lose your quarterback a day or two before that game, you're in big, big trouble. So you would prefer that they get it now if they're going to get it. I know the Bucks have done a great job of, of preventing guys from – they had a couple go on the list today and Bruce Arians, but they've done a pretty good job of, of staying out of the, the COVID, the big losses from COVID uh, so far aside from Mike Evans. They've had a few here lately, but Brady hasn't been on there yet, Mike. And the problem for other teams is they have been hit with a rash of COVID positives. The Saints, just eight days after, they looked as good as they have all year long, especially defensively shutting out the Buccaneers on Sunday night football. It was a hard watch last night as the Dolphins completely devoured a Saints team that had 22 guys on COVID reserve. And I saw Peter King complain about the realities of football that's diminished by all these COVID positives. And he's right. He's right. The NFL and the NFL Players Association have found a way to band together and get through this, but the games are suffering for it. We are getting yeah. some games that are undermined. The integrity of the game is undermined. The competitive integrity is affected by this. The Saints lost a game that they could have won, should have won, if they would have had all hands on deck, if they would have had Taysom Hill available, if they would have had Demario Davis available. If they wouldn't have had 22 total guys not available to them for that Monday night game, it was a laugher last night. And I really don't know what the solution would be. I've seen some people suggest, Shireen, that the game maybe should have been postponed a day or two. There's no guarantee that that would have helped. And also, if you postpone until Wednesday, you got both teams having to play on Sunday. What do you do? Do you bump that game a day? Do you send the Dolphins-Titans game to Monday night? Do you send... The Saints game, and I can't remember who they play. I think they're on the road in the division. Possibly the Panthers. I may be wrong. There's a good chance I am. Do you move that until Monday night? That's not a good solution either. The only real solution is just start canceling games because then at least you can go winning percentages because I'm sure the Saints would much rather, not sure, I'm certain the Saints would much rather play 16 games and have one fewer loss than have 17 games and have that extra loss because Maybe based on winning percentages, they could have gotten in if they'd only played 16 games. But again, there's no good solution, but they are getting the games in. Bad pizza is still pizza, and we got some bad pizza last night. Yes, I still eat bad pizza. I still watch the game, although I was having a hard time staying awake late in the game. I stayed up and watched it all because that's what we do. But it's it's unfortunate, and it's only going to get worse if you have a playoff game that plays out under circumstances like last night, it's going to be a much bigger deal for the NFL and for the people who invest their time and money following the sports arena. No question. Yeah, no question, Mike. And and you didn't mention the one reason why they haven't canceled game, and that is the almighty dollar. Players don't get paid. The NFL loses money. All of those things happen. So that's why they're playing these bad games, as you said. People devour the sport. Even if it's bad pizza, they're eating it, and it's pizza. And they're watching, and they're playing these games. They're going to get them in. They're intent on that. But the postseason has me a little bit worried, Mike. It really does. And I can't imagine what's going to happen if one of these teams 
loses a quarterback or loses 10 or 15 players, say you lose your offensive line like the Colts did right before a playoff game, that does question the integrity of the game at that point in my mind if you have one team that just has these massive losses. We've seen in college football, right? We had now UCLA and, and North Carolina State canceled five minutes before, I mean, five hours before the game's supposed to be played tonight. I think they've had seven games affected. Five of them have been canceled. So we're seeing it in college football. We're seeing NFL trying hard to get these games in. They've done a good job of it, but this thing's only picking up, Mike. We're not seeing numbers decrease. I mean, 106 yesterday, this is this is out of control. Well, this is the front end of the post-holiday surge that we yeah. expect, and they got rid of all the protocols basically 10 days ago, just in time for Christmas, just in time for New Year's. I think we need to worry about another uptick next week. And as yeah, I said yesterday, right. and I, I've said it multiple times the past few days, with so many of the guys who are testing positive now testing positive because they showed symptoms and they were flagged to be tested, that means there's plenty of guys that are asymptomatic that are positive, that it is washing through these teams, especially right. the teams that have the major issues. And if you're ever going to do it, you may as well do it now because once it's through and you've got de facto herd immunity, you don't have to worry about it moving forward, at least until next year. The NFL and the NFLPA are going to have a problem here next year. For now, the problem is – and the challenge is get through the season. You mentioned Bruce Arians. He tested positive today. The Buccaneers have announced that. Harold Goodwin, the run game coordinator, takes over as the head coach, which allows the coordinators, the key coordinators, Byron Leftwich on the offense and Todd Bowles on the defense, to do their jobs at a time when they may be carving out a couple hours here and a couple hours there to do virtual interviews for head coaching opportunities. You know, this is a very winnable game for the Buccaneers against the Jets in New York, but not having their head coach is going to be an issue, assuming that he's out for Sunday. He could be back by Sunday if this new tweak goes through between the league and the union and if the rule applies to all, not just players, but staff and coaches, that you can come back as soon as five days after a positive test. So Arians could be back if it's not. It'll be Harold Goodwin. And also remember, a couple of weeks ago, Shereen, they tried to come up with a way to allow people to come back faster on the back end of the protocols. But I don't get the impression that those are working the way they thought because we still have right. people out longer than we thought they'd be out once they, once yeah. they address the, the question of how soon someone can return after a positive, even if vaccinated. But, hey, for Arians... Even though he's vaccinated and boosted, he's a three-time cancer survivor. There's reason for concern. You want to make sure he's healthy. Obviously, we hope he is. We send out our best to him. What's secondary is football. And, you know, the Buccaneers kind of have a, a pretty well-oiled machine here. They can keep rolling without Bruce Arians for a game or two if they have to, uh, just because you've got a guy with head coaching experience in Todd Bowles. You've got Leftwich in charge of the offense. Arians has said time and again how much Leftwich is running the offense and not Arians. And then we know what Tom Brady does. They're in good shape to make it through this. Of any of the contenders, I think they're in the best shape to be without their head coach for a game. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. And and you do have coaches on that staff with head coaching experience. And those guys are good. So they'll make it through this game if they have to go with Bruce Arians. You do worry about him. As you said, a three-time cancer survivor. So I, I hope it's the, you know, the less uh, severe Omicron variant that he has and he can recover very quickly from this. But you do worry about the health of, of people like Bruce Arians who have underlying conditions. Yeah, is it less severe? Is it the same? Who knows? Every time I check on the yeah. news, wherever you go, you get different stories and nobody knows what the hell's going on. And that kind of sums up our existence for the past couple of years. Welcome to the second decade. Is it the second decade? Is the third decade of the 21st century where no one knows what the hell is going on at any time. And that uh, pretty much sums up uh, my existence and the existence of millions of others. All right. The NFL and the NFLPA, as discussed, talking about protocol changes. There were reports earlier today, I think ESPN had, that it could be imminent. Maybe it's happened since we've come on the air. We've been talking about this for about 15 minutes. But it feels inevitable they're going to make whatever tweaks they have to make because, as Shireen mentioned, it's all about playing the games and making sure the owners get their money and the players get their money. Once it all fell together a couple of weeks ago as the Browns, the Rams, and Washington were dealing with their issues and the NFL was bandying about the possibility of cancellation, that's when certain players woke up and said, hang on a second. If games are canceled, people don't get paid. We're, we're playing these games because we're making sure our guys get paid. And the owners are playing these games because they're making sure they get their money from the stadium receipts 
to the TV money. So that's the one shared interest that overrides all others for labor and management. And they will continue to tweak these protocols in order to ensure that the games get played. That's the bottom line. Get through the season, and it gets in place. And I'm being told now that the new guidelines have been adopted. We'll break those down during a break and maybe try to give you more information on exactly what the new facets are. But most importantly, it's about embracing the changes in the CDC rules that could allow, as mentioned at the outset of the segment, Carson Wentz to come back by Sunday and play against the Raiders in a game that is pretty important to both teams. And the Raiders the Raiders were pissed off a couple of yeah. weeks ago when their game got bumped <laughs> two days to accommodate the Browns. Now they're going to be pissed off that the rules get changed just in time for Carson Wentz to potentially come back and play for the Colts. I was just about to bring that up, Mike. The Raiders should be living. You know, they've long thought that the NFL was against them, and then you had the Gruden thing happen, and they thought the NFL was against them again, and now they moved the Week 15 game to accommodate uh, the Browns. They moved it by two days, and, of course, they ended up winning that game, but now they're going to play a team that's probably going to get their quarterback back after testing positive for for COVID uh, the week of the game. So, yeah, the Raiders are going to be livid. I think they probably should be livid. I'm not sure how I feel about this. I mean, to change this rule on on a Tuesday of, what are we in, week 17? At this point, I don't know. Why not even wait? I realize it's based on the CDC and what they did yesterday, but why not just wait now till the playoffs to to change the rules? And I I know why, because they want want these guys back. Exactly. Yes, they I want do. him back. Whatever it they, takes they want to him, get him they back. They want him to play. And it does, look, but if, there, there have been occasions in the past where there's been a rule change discussed during the season. And the league has said we can't do it during the season because changing the rules during the season undermines the overall competitive integrity. Yep. We start the season with a set of rules and we keep that set of rules. That's the one thing that isn't being discussed here. They're changing these protocols, and they're making things up as they go, not because they want to. And I know the Raiders and their fans have a persecution complex. This isn't about screwing the Raiders. This is about getting everyone paid. And they have a window now to justify letting guys come back after five days, not ten. If they're asymptomatic, that's the key. They've got to be asymptomatic. I, I've seen the tweets, multiple reports. The league is putting the word out to the megaphones on Twitter to make sure everyone is aware of what's happening. You've got to be asymptomatic, and you can be back in as soon as five days. More guys. So more guys positive, more guys back quickly. More guys able to play. And number one, you get the games played. And number two, you don't have the debacles like last night. Now, I don't know how many Saints players would have been back last night under these new procedures, but it's not going to make guys less likely to be available. It's going to make them more likely to be available, and that's good news for the NFL and the NFLPA. Whether or not it's good science, that's not up to me. If it's good enough for the CDC, then fine. Maybe it should have been five days all along. Bottom line is the NFL is going to embrace it quickly. I'm surprised it took them a day to embrace it, Shireen, because it helps them get to where they want to be. Well, I guess they had to based on that the Saints would have played under different rules than the other teams that they had adopted it yesterday, I assume. But, yeah, and if I'm the Saints and I'm the Browns, I probably have a problem with this because they're probably not going to make the playoffs. And the reason they're not going to make the playoffs is because of COVID and the rules that were in place at the time. And I realize a team like the Rams has managed to overcome it. The Titans and Colts were down a bunch of players and they overcame it last week. I get all that. But like you said, the Saints probably would have won that game yesterday had they had their roster. The Browns probably would have beaten the Raiders had they had their full complement of players, not for injuries, but for COVID and if the rules had been different. So if I'm those teams, I I do have a little question of of why now? Why are we changing this now? Uh, Why didn't we get the benefit of that rule? Right, but we know the answer. The answer is the CDC the says we cut 10 to 5. I mean, this is the one. The other ones, you can say, what's going on here? Why would you postpone the game? Why would you do it for this team? Why are you doing it for this team? Why would you change these protocols now? This is the one bright line, clear connection. No one can say that anyone's up to anything. On Monday, the CDC changes the minimum absence from 10 to 5. On Tuesday, the NFL adopts it. So, yeah, yeah. In other occasions, you can say maybe something fishy is going on in this occasion they're seizing an opportunity to do what they have to do 
to play the games. The Jaguars seizing an opportunity to talk to assistant coaches from other teams as they try to replace Urban Meyer. The news last night was that the Jaguars are going to keep Trent Baalke around as the GM. He'll report directly to owner Shad Khan, the head coach, whoever it is, will report separately and directly to Shad Khan. Six coordinators have been at least, they've at least requested permission to speak to him. It doesn't mean they're going to do it. They can say no. But Byron Leftwich and Todd Bowles of the Buccaneers, Dan Quinn and Kellen Moore of the Cowboys, Matt Eberflus, the Colts defensive coordinator, and Nathaniel Hackett, the Packers offensive coordinator. Those are the ones. Also, Doug Peterson is a guy drawing interest, the former Eagles coach. Over the weekend, there was a suggestion that Jim Caldwell, former coach of the Lions and Colts, also would be on that interview list. His name has not come up yet. But the Jaguars taking advantage of the head start, casting a wide net. But at the end of the day, Shireen, we talked about this earlier today on PFT Live, whoever takes that job is going to have to accept the fact that Trent Baalke is the GM. And there may be some guys that don't want to work with Trent Baalke. There may be. It happens. They may want to bring in their own guy. They may want to be in charge of personnel. Uh, and, And you could argue it would be better for the Jaguars to just start from scratch and hire a new GM. But, you know, if you're going to hire a GM and then your coach... The GM is always going to be the one who picks the coach. And in this case, it's going to be, I think, a combination of the GM and Shad Khan who picked the coach. And it's good to have somebody other than Shad Khan involved because to the extent he's been making big decisions over the last 10 years, haven't always gone so well. So this is a huge moment for the franchise. They need someone who's going to come in and develop Trevor Lawrence. And Trevor Lawrence has said he wants to be involved. I'd want to be involved if I were Trevor Lawrence because his career – is hinging in many respects on whether or not he gets someone in there who can develop him as a quarterback in the NFL. Yeah, Nathaniel Hackett is the most interesting name on that list when you talk about things that have gone wrong for the Jaguars. I mean, he was there as quarterback coach and then offensive coordinator from 2015 to 2018, and Doug Marone booted him. He was the scapegoat there. So I'll be interested to see if, if he even wants to, to interview with the Jaguars. I certainly would, would do the interview, but I'm not certain that I would take that job if, if I were anybody who had another opportunity to go elsewhere. I guess it depends on what you think of Trent Baalke and what you think of Trevor Lawrence if you're going to take that job. Can you win? And, of course, Shad Khan because he has such a big say in the organization. But do you think you can win based on those three factors uh, at this moment? And, and they just look so far behind, Mike. I mean, they, er, er, this is like an every-year occurrence. They need a new quarterback. They need a new coach. They need a new gym, a, a GM. And we just keep going, cycling through, because as someone once said, and, it, and it's a great saying, dysfunctional teams do dysfunctional things. I think that might have been you. Now, I stole that from Big Cat. He said that one day on PFT Live on a Friday morning, and I used that all the time. And I'd gotten to the point where I used it so often, I don't credit him every time. And uh, at some point, it will just become (laughs) mine. But at least for now, I'm still within the statute of limitations where I must periodically, periodically credit him before it becomes part of the public domain. Then it's just a saying. Right. It's a saying like any other cliche that just pops up, but it's accurate. And the Jaguars are dysfunctional. And some would say that this decision. I mean, think about it. Trent Baalke was hired by Dave Caldwell in 2020. So when Caldwell gets fired during the 2020 season, Baalke's the guy who just happens to be in the right place at the right time. Then when Urban Meyer is hired and he needs to hire someone to run personnel, he talked to a few different people and ultimately decided to stick with the guy who was already there. And then Urban Meyer flames out and Trent Baalke once again right place at right time you know he was in the right place at the right time when Scott McLuhan left the 49ers more than a decade ago and I'm not saying any of this to demean his work I'm just pointing out the reality this guy's been one of the luckiest son of a bitches I've seen in the NFL for the past 20 years I don't know that I can say that but I did he's always in the right spot and he always has things fall into his lap and and again you got to do the job or it's not going to happen and going forward he's going to be accountable he's it's it's going to be his team and they need talent, so. Uh, but but you're right. There may be some folks who have options, and they're going to opt to go somewhere else because they don't want to work with Trent Baalke. I think back to 2010-ish when the Jets really wanted Bill Cowher, 2009-2010. Was it when they hired Rex Ryan? It may be when they hired Rex Ryan. They, they wanted Cowher. Cowher didn't want Mike, Mike Tannenbaum there. He wanted to get some of his guys from Pittsburgh. And Woody Johnson wouldn't do it. So no Bill Cower. And and that's what happens. If you're if you're going for a big name, if you're going for a guy who's got juice, if you're going for a guy who's got leverage, he's gonna say, I don't want Trent Bauke. 
And, uh, and there may be a point in this process where Shad Khan makes a choice. He may have to make a choice. For now, though, yeah. the choice is Trent Baalke. Uh The choice for MVP right now, according to the betting odds, is Aaron Rodgers. He is now the only one in negative territory at points bet, which means, and I think the odds are minus 220, which would mean you have to bet $220 to win 100. Everybody else is in plus territory. Jonathan Taylor is the second on the list. And, you know, this is no surprise. The Packers are the one seed. They likely will be the one seed. Rodgers has had a, a very good statistical season. He's had some clutch performances. Yes, he had the COVID positive and he missed a game over it and they lost that game. But, you know, I said all along, if they recover from this and they're the one seed, that's not going to matter. If it keeps them from getting the one seed, then that's its own punishment. It's not that he's not the MVP because he got COVID and he said some kooky things about it. It's because his team wasn't the number one seed. If the team's the number one seed, all is necessarily forgiven and forgotten. And he, I think right now, it would be a surprise if he's not the MVP for the fourth time in his career, Shereen. No, I think it would be a huge surprise. To me, the, the second candidate is Brady, and you look at, at them side by side. I mean, Aaron Rodgers leads with 33. He has 33 touchdowns, only four interceptions. Brady leads with touchdowns with 37, but he's thrown 11 interceptions. And Rodgers leads with 110.8 passer rating. And, as you said, they're going to be the number one seed more than likely. So if they get the number one seed, I don't know that there is another candidate. I agree with that. I mean, Patrick Mahomes has 33 touchdowns as well, as you pointed out. But he has those 13 interceptions. And there have been times this season when you've watched him play and you're like, what's wrong with Patrick Mahomes? You haven't said that about Aaron Rodgers. Every time you watch him play, he looks like Aaron Rodgers. He looks like the MVP that we saw last season. He's the same guy. To me, the most interesting award right now is Offensive Player of the Year. Because is it Cooper Cup or is it Jonathan Taylor? And I'm surprised that Cooper Cup. Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup. And, I, and I know... And I agree with you. But here's my problem with Jonathan Taylor. He's not the best back in the NFL. People say, oh, he's the best back. In the-. No, Derrick Henry's the best back in the NFL. It took Jonathan Taylor two weeks to pass Derrick Henry in rushing yards. Two weeks after Derrick Henry was injured. Sonny Michelle has the most rushing yards in the month of December than over Jonathan Taylor. Jonathan Taylor's second. I realize he's been really, really good. He's a candidate for Offensive Player of the Year. But in my mind, he's not a candidate for MVP. I think it's one of those quarterbacks, and the best quarterback right now and through this season has been Aaron Rodgers. There are very few things of which I'm sure as it relates to the final two weeks of the NFL season. One thing of which I'm certain is that the Rams will get Cooper Cup one or both of those all-time yeah, no records, whether it's 149 receptions set by Michael Thomas two years ago or 1,964 receiving yards set by Calvin Johnson nine years ago. One or both of those will go down because that's the Rams vibe. And I'm not being critical, but if any team out there that would go out of its way to throw some sizzle onto the stake, it's going to be the Los Angeles Rams. And it's not like it's some gratuitous thing. He's the key piece of their offense anyway. It all runs through the passing game with passes thrown to him. It felt like he had a quiet game against the Vikings, and he still had, what, 10 catches for 109 yards. So. Yeah. Uh, I think they're going to keep moving in that direction. He'll set one or both records, and that makes him the Offensive Player of the Year. And and look, does he have a shot? I think his only shot at MVP is if the Rams end up with the one seed. It's going to take the Packers stumbling and not being the number one yeah. seed. If they're not the number one seed, then I think Aaron Rodgers isn't the MVP. That's going to be the key. So if they would lose to the Vikings this Great. weekend, they've got the Lions Week 18. They lose to the Vikings. That opens up the MVP race going into the final week of the season, I think. Yeah, I agree with you there, Mike. You talk about Cooper Cup. Some people are going to have a problem voting for Cooper Cup because they're going to say, well, Jerry Rice never won MVP. Greatest receiver and one of the greatest players in NFL history didn't win the MVP. Why would we give it to Cooper Cup? And I guarantee you there will be people that say that and not vote for Cooper Cup because Jerry Rice never won the award. I think Cooper Cup is going to win off of the player. Yes. Anyone that would say that should have their vote removed. Anyone who would say that just because there's never been an MVP and Jerry Rice wasn't MVP, Cooper Cup can't be, and no other, by implication, no other receiver ever can be. I mean, Jerry Rice never set the single season receiving record. He never set, did he set nope. the single season yardage record? Okay, this guy may set both. So, I, you know, yeah. and there he is at 25 to 1. He's crept down from 100 to 1 to 40 to 1 to 25 to 1. But I'm telling you, I, na- give me names. If you know of any voters who would make that argument, I'm going to report them. 
Well, I'm not going to. But they shouldn't have votes. <laughs> I, I, every time, I every, look, I, I, every time I see the list of the people, you deserve to have a spot on there. There are plenty of people who have those votes that don't deserve them. And anybody who would make that argument does not deserve to have one of those votes. Because that is, that is a fallacious argument. And uh, it, I, I can't believe I'm so triggered by it. I don't really care about that award enough to be upset about it. But, it. but it upsets me to think that just because Jerry Rice didn't win it, anyone would even consider not voting for another receiver. Well, and here's the thing. The MVP has turned into such a quarterback vote when you look at no, no receivers have ever won that award. The last running back to win it was Adrian Peterson. So it, it has turned into a quarterback vote, and then people look at the Offensive Player of the Year and go, okay, who's the best receiver, who's the best running back? And those are the two candidates for the Offensive Player of the Year award. That's what it has become. And I don't know that it should be that way. There certainly are running backs. Derrick Henry is a prime example of that. And I think he would have been a candidate for the MVP award if he had stayed healthy the way he, his season was going, but he didn't. So I think we should consider all the players. I don't think it necessarily has to be a quarterback. Yes, the quarterbacks are the most important player on the team, and, and generally that team that wins the one seed, that's, that's the guy you look at. But you're right. If the Packers lose this week, I think you've got to look at Cooper Cup as a potential MVP candidate. The... Um... The best season that Jerry Rice had was 1987, and I've done some quick research on that. John Elway was the MVP. Elway, yeah. It, it looks like that maybe Montana and Rice split votes, which, which I think was one of the potential problems for Cup before Matthew Stafford had his three-interception game on Sunday against the yeah. Vikings. I'm not as worried about the two of them splitting votes, but – you know, Montana won a couple of MVP awards during Jerry Rice's heyday, and that's one of the reasons Rice didn't win it. Because whenever you have a receiver that has a really special season that would put him in position to be the MVP, the guy who's throwing him the football most likely had an yeah. even more special season because he's throwing it to other guys and he's amassing even more stats. And, and I think that becomes a practical impediment. There was talk of Antonio Brown in 2017 potentially being the MVP. That was back before we realized – a lot of things about Antonio Brown, frankly, not that it would have affected his his eligibility to be MVP, but that that's why the receiver has never won it. A tight end has never won it because it's going to go to the quarterback if it's driven by performance in the passing game. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right, Mike, and it's a great point because he is going to throw to other players too, and those stats are only going to go up. And, I, you know, you go back to A&M when, when Johnny Manziel won the Heisman, I think Mike Evans had as good a case as Johnny Manziel had because Manziel would throw it up to Mike Evans and he, and he made the catches. He made Manziel look great, but Manziel was the quarterback and ended up winning it. So that happens in the NFL. The receiver is the quarterback is going to take votes away from the receiver, and you saw that with Montana and Rice, and it's a great point. All right, let's go ahead and take a break. Players of the week and coach of the week and rookie of the week, the awards for week 16. We'll do those with MBS next here on PFTPM. Matt Trips right. Trips right. Three jet. Let's go stow. X go check hinge. Check it if it's uh, soft and off. Oh, time out. <laughs> Matt Ryan's son got a look he didn't like from the defense there. He called the timeout after the play was sent in. I don't That's know. Maybe awesome. maybe they should have had maybe they should have had that kid on the headsets in one of the key moments of Super Bowl Fifty One. Uh, with that, we bring in MDS for our <laughs> Week Sixteen awards. Uh, hello, MDS. Happy holidays. We got to get to it. Offensive Player of the Week. You are up. I'm going with Titans wide receiver AJ Brown, who had missed three straight games prior to Thursday night. But he returned, and all he did was catch a career-high 11 passes, 145 yards. He scored the fourth-quarter touchdown that gave the Titans their first lead of the game. And I think we may be sleeping on the Titans a little bit because they've had so many injuries, and yet here they are in great shape in the playoff race with two games to go. I don't think Thursday night is going to be the last time we see a great game from A.J. Brown as the Titans are going to be a dangerous team in the AFC playoffs. 
MDS, I could have picked Dak Prescott, and he had an outstanding game and less than three quarters was, was fantastic, over 300 yards in the first half. But I went with Josh Allen because that was such a big victory for the Bills over the Patriots, 33-21. No win this time against the Patriots, and it made a difference for Josh Allen. 30 of 47, 314 yards, three touchdowns. 12 carries for 64 yards. He is their best rusher. And he found something in Isaiah McKenzie. He really stepped up with Cole Beasley and Gabriel Davis out. So that could be positive for the Bills going forward. Last two games, six touchdowns, one interception. They close out with the Falcons and Jets. This is another team that could really be dangerous in the AFC playoffs, especially at home, Mike. The key with Josh Allen is let him do his thing. Let him run the ball. Let him improvise. Don't worry about him getting injured. You get more out of him that way. And at this stage of the season, it's time to throw caution to the wind. Joe Burrow threw caution to the wind late in a decided game against the Ravens. It got to 525 passing yards. The fourth highest total ever in NFL history behind Norm Van Brocklin with 554 in 1951, Warren Moon with 527 in 1990, and Matt Schaub with an asterisk because it went to overtime for him to get to... 527 in 2012 but Burrow was awesome and uh, led the the Bengals to a much needed win as they keep their playoff chase going oh and by the way the Krusty Krab t-shirt with the Santa hat as he explained uh, why they did what they did during the postgame press conference was awesome and he gave me a quote that has resonated all week on social media regarding his position that he doesn't care if uh, anyone has a problem with them throwing the ball to try to get over 500 yards late in the game. All right, Defensive Player of the Week, MDS, who you got? I got Buccaneers defensive end Will Dolston, who's been a little overlooked, I think, for his contributions. This is now his ninth year in Tampa Bay. I don't think we talk about him a whole lot, in part because he's usually better at stopping the run than he is at pressuring the quarterback, and it's the pass-rushing defensive ends who usually get the attention. But on Sunday, Golston had a career-high two-and-a-half sacks in the Bucks' win over the Panthers. The Buccaneers have an excellent front seven, and Golston doesn't get anywhere near the attention of Ndamukong Sue, Vita Vea, JPP, Shaq Barrett, Devin White. But, but Golston has been a big part of that defensive success and especially was on Sunday. Well, I'm going to throw a curveball to Berkey, unfortunately, because I forgot who I picked. And so I originally picked Russell Douglas, but I'm going with Aaron Donald. And, and he's a guy that you could pick every single week for this award. He's a guy you could pick every single year for Defensive Player of the Year. And I don't know why we're not mentioning his name more for Defensive Player of the Year, because I think he's the best defensive player in football. He's been the best. And he's showing right now he's tired of all this talk about Micah Parsons and Miles Garrett and T.J. Watt and all those guys. Three tackles for losses, sacks, seven quarterback pressures. He was fantastic yet again, and we sometimes overlook his greatness, Mike. Well, every time I think Rasul Douglas is out, I'll pull him back in then. If you're not going to take Rasul Douglas, I'll take the former West Virginia Mountaineer who was the third-round pick of the Eagles in 2017, won a Super Bowl as a rookie, played for the Eagles three years, ended up in Carolina for the fourth year of his career, and then just kind of bounced around. And there he was on the Cardinals practice squad when the Packers had injuries both to Jair Alexander and Kevin King. They got him on the team. He's been phenomenal. He had two interceptions of Baker Mayfield on Saturday, including the one that sealed the game. And, yes, there may have been a little hold. Yes, there may have been a little interference, but – doesn't matter if they don't call it. And Douglas was praised by Devontae Adams and Aaron Rodgers after the game. Rodgers said he has changed our team. That's how important Rasul Douglas has been. All right, Rookie of the Week, MDS, who do you have? I have Texans quarterback Davis Mills, who was really excellent in Sunday's upset win over the Chargers. He completed 78% of his passes, 10.9 yards per pass, two touchdowns, no interceptions. And, you know, this year's rookie quarterback class has really struggled, but – I would argue that Mills has been quietly the second best of the bunch behind only New England's Mac Jones. Now, who knows what's going to happen with the Texans' rebuild and the future of Deshaun Watson. But if Mills gives the Texans reason to be optimistic in him as their franchise quarterback of the future, then that's going to be just about the only good thing that comes out of this season in Houston. But it would be a very good thing. 
Well, we've talked a lot about Jamar Chase with the Bengals, and we've kind of forgotten Jalen Waddle. And all of a sudden, he's saying, hey, don't forget about me. Ten catches for 92 yards and a touchdown. The only offensive touchdown the Dolphins scored last night against the Saints. 96 catches this season. He's five catches from Anquan Bolden's all-time rookie record of 101 set in 2003. According to Next Gen Stats, he ran routes from three different alignments last night. That's really hard to do for a rookie. You just usually see rookies with, with one assignment, and that's it. This is a guy who gets it, who's very good, and he's really coming into his own right now, Mike. I'm going with Kyle Pitts, the uh, rookie tight end for the Atlanta Falcons, who took a little while to get going. He still is in position to set the single-season record for tight end receiving yardage. It goes all the way back to Mike Ditka, MDS. You wrote something about that a while ago, last week or so. 1961 is when Ditka set that record with probably 12 games in the season. There's a chance they went to 14 by then, but I don't. I think it was 12 in 1961. I can confidently say I was not alive for that. But there's Pitts at 949 with two games to go. And yes, it's a 17-game season, but the reality is only it is 14 games, Berkey's telling me. So uh, still, it's 17 now. And it looks like Pitts has a good chance to set that record. And uh, it feels like Pitts has yet to reach the potential that we thought he would ultimately display when he was a top 10 pick back in April. So maybe the best is still yet to come for him next year and beyond. All right, Coach of the Week time, MDS, who do you have? I have Chief said Coach Andy Reid, who deserves a lot of credit for what he didn't do early this season when the Chiefs were struggling, and that is he didn't panic. He didn't make any major changes. He just said, we know what we're doing. We we just got to do it. And after their destruction of the Steelers on Sunday, I would have to say the Chiefs are playing every bit as well right now as they have in any of the last three seasons. And in the last three seasons, they've won a Super Bowl, lost a Super Bowl, and lost an AFC championship game in overtime. I don't see any reason the Chiefs can't be back in the Super Bowl again at the end of this season. They look like they are playing as well as ever. And I just think Andy Reid deserves a lot of credit for that. Before the season started, I put on Twitter, the Texans over under at five victories, and people thought I was crazy. Guess what? They have four victories right now, which is the same number they had last season with Deshaun Watson. And you can argue that they should be tanking right now instead of winning two in a row. But I think David Culley has done a great job with the development of Davis Mills and some of those young players that they've had. They've had players in and out of that roster. They've cut players. They've traded players. They've moved on from players. They had 16 players on COVID, and the Texans come out and upset the Chargers. No one saw that coming. They've beaten the Titans, the Chargers, and the Jaguars twice. And I tell you what, the next two teams on their schedule better be ready to play. Should Nick Casario get part of that award since he's basically the Cyrano de Bergerac (laughs) for David Culley whispering in his ear all game long about what he should do? I say that somewhat jokingly, but not completely jokingly. There is no joke about Frank Reich, though, and what he did on Christmas night in Arizona. Overmatched outmanned, guys on COVID, guys injured, guys not available. The Cardinals were looking like maybe they could get things turned around. They had lost three straight games at home, and the Colts just came out and kicked Arizona's butts. Now, it wasn't a blowout, but it just it felt, you know, start to finish. The Colts were the more physical team. They were the more determined team. They, they, they got off the field when they had to get off the field. They extended drives when they needed to extend drives, and Frank Reich needs to get a ton of credit for what he's done with this team yes they have a lot of talented players but they didn't have a lot of talented players available to them on saturday night and they got it done and we've gotten it done for week 16 we'll be back next tuesday to do the week 17 awards until then we say farewell and thank you and happy new year to mds and we'll be back with more pft live and the important anniversary that december 28 brings to the nfl we'll be right back Oh, an important anniversary in the National oh, Football here League. Here we are, December 28, 1975, divisional round of the playoffs. Vikings leading late. The deep pass by Roger Staubach to Drew Pearson, who pushed off Nate Wright and knocked him to the ground. And Paul Krause, <laughs> who should have been getting over to Paul, help out instead of complaining about, complaining about Nate Wright. And that's what I had to say today. It was OPI then, and it's still OPI today. Yes, under the rules of... 46 years ago, it should have been. Under the rules of today, it hopefully would have been. But shame on the Vikings for not playing better defense on that play. I mean, that that really is – it's easy for me to complain about what happened. And I was devastated. I was 10 years old. 
that was the best Vikings team of the 70s, in my 10-year-old opinion. They had started the year 10-0. and They lost 31-30 to to Washington in one of those late Sunday afternoon games when it was dark and the lights were on. And it was kind of a special game because you only got one primetime game a week in Monday Night Football. Right. So you got one of those late Sunday afternoon games in the fall, and it felt like a Monday night game. So that was a big deal. They barely lost that game. They lost to the Lions a week or two later. They had an epic Week 14 game against the Bills in Buffalo where it snowed. Uh, Chuck Foreman took an ice ball in the, in the eye socket that game, and then they came back the next weekend. They had the Dallas Cowboys beaten, and there it, there it was. And Drew Pearson threw the ball over the stadium. God only knows who ended up with that football. We've talked about that before. But uh, yeah. I still, I still yeah. remember the agony. I remember crying on the floor of our kitchen. I remember laying in a spot, and we had carpet in our kitchen for some reason. I don't know why the hell anybody has carpet in their kitchen. It wasn't like shag. It was like thin with a pattern on it. It was ugly as hell. And I was laying in the spot where I had once, while I was sticking my finger into a banana cream pie before dinner time, the I don't have to see it again. The pie had fallen out and stained the carpet. <laughs> and there was a banana cream pie stain right in front of the refrigerator. And I remember I was face down in the banana cream pie stain, crying and crying after that happened. That was the low point of my childhood. And as I've said before, if that's the low point of your childhood, it's not a bad childhood. Not that, if that's your well, biggest complaint yeah. between the ages of 1 and 18, not a bad childhood. So I'll take it. Well, and that was a special season for the Cowboys because it was so unexpected that they won that game and went on to get to the Super Bowl. They had the Dirty Dozen, the 12 rookies on that team. They were a very young team and, of course, got to the Super Bowl and lost to Pittsburgh. But I was at my mamaw's house, my, my mother's mother's house, and we were watching the game, and we had to drive five hours back, and I wouldn't let to leave. And my cousin said at the end of that game, well, Shireen, it's over. The Cowboys have lost. And I said, it is not over. They have Roger Staubach. And about that time, he reared up and threw that pass through Pearson. And I started screaming and yelling, I told you, I told you, I told you. I am cursing very, very profusely <laughs> under my breath right now. Um, and and I, was, I was very torn in Super Bowl X because I was still mad at the Steelers yeah. for beating the Vikings in the Super Bowl the year before. I was still mad at the Cowboys for beating the Vikings two weeks earlier. So I wanted them both to lose. I wanted a tie Bad pizza. in the Super Bowl. That's what I wanted. I wanted Donovan McNabb to decree that a tie would happen in Super Bowl X. Uh, anyway, uh, the current Vikings will not get to the Super Bowl. They won't have to worry about losing in the divisional round to the Cowboys or anyone else. They're not going to make the playoffs, I believe. And one of the things they have to deal with, here's Justin Jefferson, the Vikings receiver, after Sunday's loss to the Rams, followed with Mike Zimmer's effort to scrape the toothpaste back into, as Shereen would say, the toothpaste holder on Monday. <laughs> I think we should, you know, be more aggressive uh, when we get when we get down there. As soon as we get down there, uh, but you know, I'm not the one calling the plays. Um, I'm just here to do my job and do what was told to me. Uh, but. You know, we, we can't get down in the red zone that many times and come out with three points. I think Justin is was just frustrated. At, hey, we're all frustrated. When we, when we don't win a game, we all get frustrated. We all have uh, say things 10 minutes after the game that we wish we wouldn't have. In my opinion, he's, he's just trying to – he just wants to win. And part of that is uh, he wants to get the ball if he can. And um, – you know, I, I don't think he's calling out anybody. That's not the type of person that he is. He's a he's a he's a guy that wants to go out and play and, and play his very best every single week. Hey, and look, Mike Zimmer's got bigger issues right now than Justin Jefferson's long-term outlook in Minnesota. My immediate concern when I saw his comments was he could be on the Stephon Diggs path and and want to move on, although he can't complain about the number of opportunities he gets in Minnesota. At some point, you just want to win. And for whatever reason, it's not working. And when he talks about lack of energy, Shireen, that concerns me because that's plagued the Vikings all year. They've had lapses. They've lost focus. They've lost leads. At least they didn't blow a lead on Sunday because they didn't have a lead to blow. And one of the reasons they didn't have a lead to blow is because they didn't have energy right out of the gate. So this is troubling but, but again, for Zimmer, it's probably not going to be his trouble in 12 days if they don't make the playoffs and he ends up being fired. 
Well, and Mike, you go back to a week ago, Amari Cooper did the same thing in Dallas, talking about their red zone woes, and it, it was similar. Like he said, I want more targets, and now we're hearing it from Justin Jefferson, but the difference is the Cowboys are and were winning, and the Vikings are not. But they had five red zone possessions, and they got touchdowns on two of those, two field goals, and Kirk Cousins threw an interception on the other. And Jefferson, in that span of plays that they had he saw one target in the red zone and it was a five yard pass on second and forever whatever it was so they need to do a better job of targeting him in the red zone to have a chance to win these next two games to have a chance to go to the playoffs to have a chance to save Mike Zimmer's job because all of that and I don't think they will I'm with you but all of that plays into it obviously and if Zimmer stays, Kirk Cousins has to go. I think those two Agreed. never clicked. They don't click. One of the reasons, and, and I, look, I'm reluctant to say this, and I don't want to get any hostile text messages or phone calls. I've been there and I've done that. But the reality is at some point you're accountable for what the team has done. You're accountable for the fact that you abdicate the offense to the coordinator and you're not involved. And when you wonder why two-point plays aren't working, you don't like the plays that are called, well, you should be more involved in that process. I, I don't like it when – a defensive coach has no involvement in the offense, and then when the offense just isn't getting it done and when the quarterback isn't getting it done and they've paid him so much money, there's a problem that needs to be fixed. And either it's Zimmer or it's Cousins. But I think one of them's got to go. Maybe both of them will end up going. It's going to be a strange offseason for the Vikings as they try to get it pointed in the right direction. We're going to take a break, and we'll bust open the mailbag to wrap up this Tuesday edition of PFTPM right after this. Excellent question from Cody Marmon to start off today's mailbag segment. Shireen, who's one team in the NFC playoff field that you trust the most? Uh, I guess he, he means those that are in the hunt, right? Is that what we're answering rather than those Anyone in the in? playoff picture. Anyone in the picture that you trust well, the most. Well, for going with I, anyone, I yeah, I'm – if we're going with anyone, I'm trusting the Buccaneers just because they've been there and, and won that. If we're talking about those in the hunt, it's a really tough question. I I guess I'm going with the 49ers, but, I, I mean, they're going to start Trey Lance probably the next two games, so I don't know if I trust them. I don't know if there's anyone in the NFC who's not already in that I'm trusting to win those last two spots. I don't see any any of these teams winning their next two games, none of them. I trust the Buccaneers throughout the postseason. They've got the experience. They play well at home. They play well on the road. They can go to Lambeau Field and win if they need to. We saw them do it last year. As it relates to the other teams, the fringe teams, the teams that haven't nailed down a spot yet, I'm intrigued by the Eagles because I think they could develop a little bit of a nothing-to-lose vibe and surprise some people and maybe get some teams to look down their noses at them and then rise up and give them an uppercut and move on to the next round the 49ers if if they can keep Jimmy Garoppolo from letting them down then maybe maybe they can get it done speaking of being let down let down New York Nick wants to know my prediction for West Virginia's bowl game tonight I I only have a few seconds left in the program I've lost interest because of the the conference (laughs) that the West Virginia program's in and this NIL thing West Virginia's on its way to being a third tier program so sorry I'm opting out don't burn down my house I still live here see you tomorrow